0: Welcome to the Michigan Constitution Podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution, and its defining case law, affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's supreme law, and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism, too. And now, here's Tony.
1: Welcome back to the 12th installment of the Michigan Constitution podcast. Today, we discuss Article 1, Section 5. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution, each podcast, will review a different article's section, we'll talk about what it means, and we'll review Michigan case law, which helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what this podcast is not. It is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law, I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated the day I post this podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan constitutional scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. you do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8-Ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice, you would be well served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for their Lawyer Referral Service Program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal matter. Unlike the United States Constitution which combines many free speech protections such as peaceable assembly, petitioning of government, free and expressive speech, and freedom of the press, the Michigan Constitution breaks those provisions up between Article 1 Section 3 and Article 1 Section 5. Today, we discuss Article 1, Section 5, and free speech. This includes freedom of speech for both you and for the media.
0: Each person may freely speak, write, express, and publish his views on all subjects, being responsible for the abuse of such right, and no law shall be enacted to restrain or abridge the liberty of speech or of the press.
1: I'm going to take a handful of free speech topics and discuss how they've been applied and protected by the Michigan Constitution and our courts. I'm going to discuss First Amendment free speech concepts generally, but we'll also do a deep dive into more specific aspects such as commerce and political speech, pornography and obscenity laws, instances where speech becomes defamatory, when, why, and how the state government can place restrictions on your speech, and finally, we'll discuss those restrictions that are improper because they're vague and overly broad. So let's begin our general discussion of your free speech rights here in Michigan by talking about our first case. People versus O'Neill, 1970. It's 1967 and racial and civil unrest is sweeping the nation. This is especially true in Southeast Michigan. On July 23rd at 5.30 p.m., defendant O'Neill is seen walking down a Highland Park residential neighborhood with four or five other individuals. At some point, these individuals stop walking and begin conducting themselves in what was considered a loud and noisy manner. The number of people congregating went from five or six to about 10 to 15, with an additional 60 or 70, six zero or seven zero, 60 or 70 people watching the 10 to 15 individuals out on their front lawns and porches. Based on the actions and statements allegedly made by Mr. O'Neill, he was charged with undertaking to incite a riot. Defendant O'Neill was subsequently convicted for inciting a riot, and his case wound its way through the court system, ultimately to be taken up by the Michigan Court of Appeals. Was Mr. O'Neill's loud and noisy actions or statements protected free speech under the Michigan Constitution? The Court of Appeals said no, While they understood that there were times when people were unhappy with the direction of the country and their right to express their frustration is always protected under the Michigan Constitution, how they go about expressing those sentiments is subject to some restrictions. They noted, from a United States Supreme Court case, that there is societal value to subordinate free speech to other values and considerations. One of those considerations, our appellate court notes, is where speech creates a clear and present danger of a riot. The court found that when words are used in such circumstances and are of such a nature as to create a clear and present danger, that will bring about the problems the Michigan legislature has the right to prevent. Herein, riots. Thus, restrictions can be placed on what a person is saying. The court noted that only 12 hours previous to Mr. O'Neill's actions and statements, a full-scale riot had occurred in Detroit. Even though defendant argues there was no clear and present danger in this case, the Court of Appeal judges thought otherwise. They noted defendants yelling and screaming had helped cause a crowd to grow, as well as testimony provided explaining some persons of this 10 to 15 group began to advance on the nearby police. For those reasons, the Michigan Court of Appeals found that clear and present danger existed, The Legislature seeks to prevent danger and damage to individuals due to rioting, and these statements and actions by Mr. O'Neill were a legitimate reason to restrict his speech so as to prevent subsequent riots. The next case I want to discuss, which covers free speech generally, is Burns v. City of Detroit 2002. Plaintiff was a female fingerprint technician for the City of Detroit Police Department, she claimed two male coworkers sexually harassed her and her supervisors did not take the appropriate remedial actions after she reported the harassment. Ms. Burns sued for sexual harassment, retaliation, defamation, and tortious interference with a business relationship. The jury found in favor of plaintiff on all four claims. As a result, the case made its way through the system from trial court to appeals court to the Michigan Supreme Court. At the Michigan Supreme Court level, those justices told the lower court of appeals it needed to determine whether the remarks made by the male coworkers regarding the sexual harassment allegation was protected speech under the Michigan Constitution's Article I, Section 5. Although there were many quotes of the male coworkers in the Michigan Court of Appeals opinion, there are few repeatable for a family podcast like mine. I will share with you the ones that both illustrate the forms of harassment Ms. Burns experienced and yet won't require censoring too much of the profanity. Quote, You got to understand that these females in identification are unhappy women who don't have men in their lives. For a woman who don't have a man to be friends with another woman who don't have a man and getting advice from each other don't make any sense. What kind of is that? These women don't have nothing else in their lives, end quote. Here's another quote. If you catch her ass out there and stump the living shit out of her fucking ass, nobody will see you and I'll drive past like I didn't see anything. If you don't want to do it, I got some partners from my old neighborhood who could do it for you, end quote. The last usable quote for illustrative purposes, she's a male hating female, end quote. The two co-workers also made comments about Ms. Burns that she was abnormal for being over 30 years of age and neither married nor in a relationship. Additionally, Ms. Burns testified that one of the co-workers would blow in her ear at work and ask her why she covered her body, as well as receiving irritating or romantic notes from the other co-worker. Once Ms. Burns reported these comments and threats to her supervisors, a meeting took place to discuss the various workplace issues. During that meeting, to discuss the issues taking place in the office and against Ms. Burns, a supervisor stated that women are apt to cry sexual harassment because of premenstrual syndrome. That same supervisor also warned that anything a man says to a woman could cause him to end up in court. As a result of her complaint, the police department transferred her to the day shift, which resulted in both a pay cut as well as a new expense, that being for childcare. Ms. Burns noted that the night shift paid more because most employees of the police department preferred to work the day shift. As such, the department paid more to the night shift employees as an incentive to work the night shift. Ms. Burns explained she preferred the night shift, not just because of the extra pay, but because it allowed her to be with her children during the day, thus saving her the expense of childcare. Apparently, her friends and family members could watch her kids during the evening hours once those individuals had completed their own personal uh, day shift. The issue that the Court of Appeals had to grapple with is whether the remarks made by the male co-workers supported a hostile work environment or if those remarks are protected speech thanks to the Michigan Constitution. Well, uh, spoiler alert these comments are not protected speech under the Michigan Constitution, but I suspect you probably already knew that. See, the Michigan Court of Appeals does a deep dive into a free speech analysis as well as a vagueness and overbreadth review of the matter at hand. So let's start with the more in-depth portion, which is the free speech analysis. To begin, The court of appeals addresses that our article 1 section 5 protections of free speech is identical to the united states constitution's first amendment if you have the right of free speech under the u.s constitution you're going to have that same free speech right under the michigan constitution so the court relies on some u.s supreme court cases to enforce the michigan constitution in our case at hand first The Michigan Court of Appeals notes that the right of free speech is not absolute at all times and under all circumstances. For example, speech which is lewd, obscene, profane, defamatory, or constitutes fighting words are all well observed to hold no part of expression of ideas. Similarly, resorting to epithets or personal abuse is not in any proper sense communication of information or opinion safeguarded by the Constitution and the punishment of those words as being criminal, well, it raises no question of violating the free speech provision of the Michigan Constitution. The Court of Appeals found that the comments at issue clearly held no essential part of any expression of ideas. To the contrary, the court thought the comments made by Ms. Burns' workers were closer to fighting words, which by their very utterance inflict injury or tend to incite an immediate breach of the peace. These specific statements constituted a vulgar ad hominem attack against the person. The epithets and the personal abuse directed towards a particular individual were not in any proper sense communication of information or opinion safeguarded by the Constitution, this court held. Therefore, the court concluded, the language at issue simply does not reach the level of constitutionally protected speech provided by the Michigan Constitution. The court did note that the co-workers are free to express their views in the workplace but the Constitution does not protect them from liability for verbal attacks by use of ad hominem and sexually explicit vulgarities. Next, the Court of Appeals took a look at the protections within the Michigan Civil Rights Act to determine if provisions within that act are in violation of the Michigan Constitution's free speech protection. Again, as you can imagine, the answer was essentially not on your life. The court said the purpose of the Michigan Civil Rights Act was to prevent the language and conduct that was outside the scope of the Michigan Constitution's free speech provision. You can't violate the Michigan Civil Rights Act by making obscene comments only to try and say that you have a constitutional right to say the obscene comments, which are trying to be prohibited. That's the point of the Michigan Civil Rights Act. Think of the Michigan Civil Rights Act as a belt and suspenders approach. The suspenders are your free speech rights under the Michigan Constitution. But the belt is the protection within the Michigan Civil Rights Act against speech not protected by the suspenders. The Michigan Civil Rights Act prohibits sexual discrimination in employment practices by targeting any intimidating hostile, or offensive conduct in the workplace. The act is essentially directed toward discriminatory conduct and oral remarks such as those at issue here in our case. Although the court immediately finds the act is constitutional when challenged by the free speech provisions, the appeals court had to also review the act to determine whether the prohibitions in the Civil Rights Act were too vague and or overbroad such that, the act was unconstitutional. To determine if a statute is vague, the court has explained, we look at three aspects of the prohibition. First, does the statute provide fair notice of the conduct prohibited? Second, does the prohibition give the court unstructured and unlimited discretion to determine whether an offense has been committed? And thirdly, Is the prohibition so broad that it sweeps up and outlaws both unprotected as well as protected free speech? Well, the court dismisses the first two questions as not having been violated, meaning they believe there was fair notice of conduct prohibited by the defendant and that there was no unstructured or unlimited discretion being deferentially given to a court. So the last question Is it so broad a prohibition that it sweeps up both good and bad speech and prohibits both? Well, here the court ruled it does not violate protected speech. To the contrary, the Civil Rights Act prohibits unwelcome sexual conduct that was intended to substantially interfere with the employee's employment and created an intimidating, hostile, and offensive work environment. The Court of Appeals found that whether a hostile work environment exists is to be determined by whether a reasonable person, in the totality of the circumstances, would have perceived the conduct at issue as substantially interfering with the plaintiff's employment or having the purpose of creating an intimidating, hostile, or offensive employment environment. It was, specifically this court noted, the words reasonable person which prevented the act from being overbroad. The court concluded a reasonable person would understand the act does not prohibit constitutionally protected speech, but instead prohibits communication of a sexual nature, like our issues here with Ms. Burns, that substantially interferes with her work environment. Our third case I think is kind of fun and and quite frankly, I like the defendant's last name. And since this is my podcast, I decide which cases you hear about, but honestly, I think you're going to enjoy it. So let's talk about People versus Boomer, 2002. In 1998, on the Rifle River in Aranat County, defendant Boomer was with a group of friends canoeing on the river when he fell out of his canoe. Because of this, he began loudly screaming a stream of profanities while slapping the water and throwing his hands in the air out of frustration. Apparently, 40 yards behind Boomer was a family with two children under the age of five who could hear and see what was occurring. At the same time, an Aranac County Sheriff Deputy testified that he heard a loud commotion and vulgar language coming from about one quarter mile up the river. He also noted Boomer splashing water at his group of friends with his paddle and repeatedly swearing at him. The river was crowded with families and children, and the deputy said that Boomer easily would have been able to see the two children under the age of five. For those reasons, Boomer was issued a citation for violating a statutory misdemeanor. The statute reads as follows. Any person who shall use any indecent, immoral, obscene, vulgar, or insulting language in the presence or hearing of any woman or child shall be guilty of a misdemeanor. So a little backstory on this statute. It was enacted with the verbiage as read to you back in 1931. Now remember, this is 1998 when Boomer is being charged with the violation. So we're looking at about, uh, gosh, 67 years between when it was on the books and this particular case. But the original version of this statute dates back to 1897. In 1897, the prohibition on indecent, immoral, obscene, et cetera, et cetera, language in the presence of women and children only applied within the uh, city village and township limits so apparently it was necessary to expand this prohibition to all of michigan in 1931. well as you can imagine boomer gets convicted of his misdemeanor and it gets appealed to the michigan court of appeals the court decides it needs to look at whether the statute is vague they cite a michigan supreme court case which explained the vagueness doctrine as Any criminal statute must define the criminal offense with sufficient definitiveness that ordinary people can understand what conduct is prohibited and in a manner that does not encourage arbitrary and discriminatory enforcement. So a criminal statute may be found unconstitutionally vague if
0: 1. The statute fails to provide fair notice of what conduct is prohibited, or 2. The statute encourages arbitrary and discriminatory enforcement. Or three, the statute is overbroad and impinges upon free speech freedoms.
1: Here, the court literally comes right out and says how difficult it would be to find any statute more vague than this statute at hand. Well, I guess there goes the building of the suspense on how the court falls on this subject, right? They stated there was no restrictive language whatsoever contained in the statute that would limit or guide a prosecution for indecent, immoral, vulgar, obscene, or insulting language. They even went so far as to note a prosecution where one utters quote-unquote insulting language could possibly subject a vast percentage of the populace to a misdemeanor conviction. The court found this statute fails to provide fair notice of what conduct is prohibited, so that's the first way for it to be deemed unconstitutional, and it encourages arbitrary and discriminatory enforcement, well, the second way it can be deemed unconstitutional. The Court of Appeals held that the construction of the statute as worded would require every person who speaks audibly where children are present to guess what a law enforcement official might consider to indecent, immoral, or vulgar to a child's ears. Regardless of the children, our court finds it is far from obvious what the reasonable adult considers to be indecent or immoral or vulgar and insulting. As a result, a judicially imposed reasonable person limitation would have not even cured the vagueness problem of this statute. Lastly, the court did take note Our free speech rights under the Michigan Constitution does not protect obscene speech, and the legislature could enable a properly drawn statute to protect minors from such exposure. But this act and the way it's worded does not achieve that goal. As such, the court found the statute was also vague due to its infringement on speech, Even though the court only needed one of the three aforementioned reasons to deem it unconstitutional, they found the statute violated all three provisions and was unconstitutional for all three reasons. The final case within the general free speech category I wanted to highlight is in re contempt of Dudzinski 2003. The fact pattern here is pretty lengthy, but I think you'll find it compelling, so stick with me. In 2000, Mr. Dudzinski sat in a courtroom as a spectator during a pre-trial settlement discussion in a murder case, and, and that's that's key. There, it's, it was a pre-trial settlement discussion in a murder case, and, and I'll promise I'll tie it all together here in, in just a few minutes. Mr. and Mrs. Dudzinski were wearing shirts which had the statement "Courts, cops, crooks" imprinted upon it. It should be noted that each letter of the words, courts, cops, crooks, started with the letter K. So when viewed on the shirt, courts, cops, crooks listed KKK. The trial court judge told Mr. and Mrs. Dudzinski their shirts were not appropriate for court and they were directed to leave immediately. The judge did say that if they were to change their shirts, or perhaps even if they just turned them inside out and backwards, that they would be welcome to come back into the courtroom to observe the proceedings. In fairness, the judge did explain to the Dudzinskys that he was concerned the shirts would taint the fair administration of justice and potentially deprive the parties of a fair trial. The next year, 2001, Mr. Dudzinski again came into court wearing his courts, cops, crooks shirt during a court proceeding which was addressing the murder victim's estate. The hearing was in front of the same judge as in 2000, and once again the judge noted the KKK shirts of Mr. Dudzinski. He again offered Mr. Dudzinski the opportunity to either change his shirt or leave the courtroom. Mr. Dudzinski this time invoking his constitutional right to free speech refused both of the judges dis- directives as such the trial court judge citing the need for a fair administration of justice to all parties held mr dudzinski in contempt of court and sentenced him to 29 days in jail mr dudzinski appealed his case to the court of appeals Mr. Dudzinski argues that the trial court violated his constitutional right to freedom of expression by finding him guilty of contempt of court by wearing his KKK shirt in the courtroom. The Michigan Court of Appeals began their analysis by citing a United States Supreme Court case which ruled every citizen lawfully present in a public place has the right to engage in expressive activity and such activity may generally not be restricted on the basis of its content but may be restricted if the manner of expression is basically incompatible with the normal activity of the particular place at the particular time. More so, the speech or expression that is restricted because of the content of the message it conveys is subject to the most exacting scrutiny. Therefore, the court opined, if government, here being the court because a court is a part of the overall government, if government is going to restrict speech on the basis of its content, it will have to show that its regulation is necessary to serve a compelling state interest and that it is narrowly drawn to achieve that end. So, said with far less legal ease, when Mr. Dudzinski was wearing his KKK shirt in the courtroom, he was exercising his free speech, not by speaking, but by putting words on his shirt. This is expression speech, not verbal speech. But, to be clear, both are protected by the Michigan Constitution. So if a judge who is a cog in the wheel of government looks to restrict Mr. Dudzinski's freedom of expression speech, the judge is going to have to make sure he is doing so because he had both a compelling reason to restrict the speech and that what he's doing is narrowly done to achieve his goal. And the court of appeals does agree, let me be clear, does agree with the judge that speech can be restricted if it constitutes an imminent threat to the administration of justice. So the first prong of the two prong test is met. That first prong being that there is compelling state interest in restricting that freedom uh, of, of speech in the courthouse or in the courtroom specifically. But is that a compelling interest that the government has? And what constitutes compelling interest? Well, in this instance, it would be the fair administration of justice. But, it's the second prong that the Court of Appeals takes issue with. The second prong is that the restriction imposed is narrowly created to achieve the fair administration of justice. The court notes that criticism of courts, within limits, should not be discouraged and it is a proper exercise of the rights of free speech. The speaker of those criticisms should not be subject to contempt proceedings unless it tends to impede or disturb the administration of justice. Now, whether or not the speech impedes or disturbs the administration of justice is a balancing act. You have to balance the right to free speech on the one side of the scale with the right to a fair trial on the other side of the scale. So, the Court of Appeals believed one must look to the speech to determine if it poses a serious and imminent threat to a fair trial. If that speech poses a serious and imminent threat to a fair trial, then free speech loses and fair trial wins. The theory here is that it is more important to ensure the parties to a lawsuit have a chance to prove their case in court and have a party win on the merits of a case versus a person's free speech right. And this actually makes a lot of sense. And and here's the reason why. The person's free speech right is only being limited within the courtroom itself. Mr. Dudzinski can wear his shirt in the halls of the courthouse or on the outside steps of the courthouse. He can go on TV with his shirt. He could put up billboards with his shirt. He could sell them on the internet. He's only limited by his imagination. So because Mr. Dudzinski can't wear his shirt with KKK on it inside the courtroom is a minimal restriction. Because look at the other side of the argument, these parties that are going to court. The only place that the parties in this lawsuit can go to deal with the legal repercussions of the murder victim's death is in that courtroom. And the defendant, the police officer who shot and killed Lamar Grable, only that court can pass judgment. What happens in that court is the only place that matters to the defendant. So the Court of Appeals is saying it's okay to temporarily limit someone's speech when in the courtroom because that person can speak whatever they want pretty much anywhere else. But this defendant only has this courtroom to win or lose his legal argument. But in our case at hand, The Court of Appeals determined Mr. Dudzinski's KKK shirt was not threatening the administration of justice against the defendant police officer. The statement on the shirt is a political statement by comparing the city of Detroit's police and courts as corrupt crooks. After all, the underlying matter is police brutality, and the message on the shirt is tied directly to the killing of Lamar Grable by Detroit police but the Court of Appeals found the shirt never unduly interfered with the right to a fair trial to the defendant. They noted that Mr. Dudzinski sat quietly and never disturbed the proceedings because he was not with a large group that were overwhelming the courthouse, nor because the shirt was uh, never worn in front of a jury. So because of that, the right to a a fair trial was never threatened. The court thought that if Mr. Dudzinski had tried to wear this shirt in front of a jury, that could have negatively impacted the impression of the jurors against the defendant. But when the shirt was worn during something as relatively minor as a pre-trial motion, and remember I told you we'd circle back to it, this relatively minor pre-trial motion the Court of Appeals found hardly impacted the fairness to a defendant. This shirt, with its KKK statement printed upon it, was not the kind of serious or imminent threat to the administration of justice a court seeks to protect. The Court of Appeals ruled Mr. Dodzinski should not have been required to remove his shirt or leave the courtroom. Okay, I think that's probably gonna do it for this podcast. I've given you a lot to think about as it relates to free speech. It's not always said verbally. It can be said expressively. And that's okay. The Michigan Constitution does protect that freedom. But your freedom of speech can be limited, particularly if it's considered obscene. You can't sexually harass someone and try to protect yourself under Article 1, Section 5's freedom of speech. That sort of language is not protected. Even words used on a river in front of children may be restricted, but those restrictions cannot be vague the person must clearly be able to determine what is or is not proper use of words. But next time, we'll dig a little deeper into those restrictions on free speech. Until next time.
0: The Michigan Constitution podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit TonySnyder.com. Send an email to podcast at TonySnyder.com or follow Tony on Twitter at Tony Snyder. Catch new episodes on the first and fifteenth of each month.